right, guys, welcome to the Sync My Music podcast. Today, I have a very special treat for you. I have Ken Vandevree, and Ken actually reached out to me a couple of weeks ago. We've been emailing and talking. We've actually had a couple of chats, and Ken's actually one of the few um, students or just somebody that's found my content that's actually been in this industry much longer than I have. So he's actually been in the business uh, 25 years. So he's seen a lot more than I have. He's seen a lot more uh, trends. He's seen where the industry has really evolved over the course of the last 25 years. And I thought it'd be kind of an interesting idea to bring him on board for this podcast episode so that we could both essentially trade tips in terms of if we were going to go back to our former selves, me 12 years ago, Ken 25 years ago, what would we say to ourselves all that time ago to maybe better prepare ourselves for this industry? Because I certainly didn't have much of a mentor or any sort of real clear path of what I should be doing or how to really treat this very seriously. Um, and I'm sure Ken, you know, made his mistakes and kind of figured it out as he went along. So I said, you know, why don't you put your best four or five tips that you would give yourself all those years ago, and I'll do the same for myself. And so for all of you guys that are watching, if you're in the beginning stages of your licensing career, you're going to now have the golden tips, the golden wisdom that we wish we would have had when we got started. So our goal for sharing this stuff with you is to save you time, headaches, heartaches, and to just make sure that you have the right expectations as to what you're really getting into in this uh, in this business. So Ken, why don't you go ahead and introduce, your, uh, introduce yourself, let me know about your company, what you do, and just a little bit more about your um, career in the uh, sync licensing world. Sounds good. Um, I've, I run ADS Media, and uh, we create media content we originally started off doing primarily jingles and stuff like that but um, i found that i was looking for other opportunities to create revenue and it's the the advertising and, and production industry in itself is i mean it's ever evolving and uh so i looked at at the opportunities to get my music on on television i really wanted to get into television shows so uh, I started off by doing just a little local fishing show, and um, at that point, I was licensing my music off to them, but I wasn't aware of how you... I always heard of royalties, but I had no idea how you could make money at that. Um, and so, and I know that's... We're gonna, we can maybe discuss a little bit of that later on here, uh, how that works and where those revenue streams come from, uh, because it was completely foreign to me. I had no, I, I had no idea who paid the royalties, why you got these royalties. Um, but as I saw the, you know, the commercial aspect of my business shifting and changing from a, a content creation standpoint, I thought, you know, how do you create that some passive income? So uh, you're not working all the time and uh, you've got revenue kind of coming in on a regular basis based on what you've created. So that's where I started to explore uh, production music, uh, not only directly licensing the music to clients or TV shows, which I, I do that on a regular basis till I have clients that I'm, I'm licensing, you know, I, I write directly for their, their series or their programs. But that stability, that ongoing and recurring income uh, through library and catalog music uh, is where I've really invested my, my time and efforts, you know, that fill those gaps between those projects. So for myself, I don't necessarily spend all my time writing production music because again of my existing contracts but any space that i've got in my production schedule i do spend that doing uh, production music so that's where we really focus the majority of our business my business is pretty diverse as far as other people go there's other aspects to it from a production standpoint but uh, my primarily my, my primary 
job here is to write and create and oversee the music that we we create here in the company so awesome man and can you maybe uh, walk us through some of your more notable placements that you've had over the years maybe ad campaigns or tv shows whatever you've got secured tv show placements i've had stuff on the rio olympics naked and afraid today's show dateline nbc they they use my stuff all the time i just saw my recent statement 60 minutes uh cnbc fifth estate current affair access hollywood masters of flip um up in Canada, Hockey Night in Canada. I'm, I'm a Canadian. Um, I've had American Idol, as I know you've had that as well. Uh, the list goes on. Uh, we've got Dragon's Den, which is kind of uh, the uh, what's the uh, the one where the your business? Why can't I think of the name of it right now? Um, uh, Shark Tank, similar to Shark Tank. Uh, American Greed, Saturday Night Live, what not to wear. Um, that's just a small. Uh, portion, you know, sampling of all the, the placements I've had. Uh, you can probably look me up somewhere online and find out a list of all the shows that I've had music on, but it's extensive. And... Yeah, and that's a great problem to have when you can't remember all your placements, actually. So you're in a great position. So that's awesome, man. Yeah. So obviously, you guys know Ken now has a lot of credibility. He's been doing this for a long time. So that's the main reason why I brought him on here for this particular episode, because if you're going to get wisdom and you're going to get advice or any sort of counseling on how to succeed in this business, I want it to come from people who have actually done it, not from people that read a book about it or understand the theory of licensing. Somebody who's actually lost sleep in this industry, who's actually, you know, burned their ears out, who's actually uh, dealt with really, really tight deadlines and faced rejection and faced a whole bunch of revisions. And Ken has obviously faced all of those things. So we're going to go back and forth now with our basically top tips for what we would tell ourselves or tell anybody, any of you listening to this podcast um, when you're first getting started. So I'll start with the first one. And this kind of is the sort of broad tip that will kind of encompass everything that we're going to talk about it. And for me, I wish 12 years ago, I had taken this a lot more seriously from the start. In the very beginning, I really didn't know that this could be a potential full-time income opportunity for myself. I actually saw it as more a couple hundred bucks here and there, maybe 500 bucks a month, you know, not a small amount of money, but not enough to actually live off of. So I actually, in the beginning, was just kind of casually approaching this industry, thinking that I'll make some grocery money, I'll pay my utility bills with it, but I didn't even think of it as something that I could actually pay my rent with, let alone pay a mortgage with, actually build up savings, actually live off of this stuff. So I think if I had had that more dedicated and um, and more of a sort of a, a serious mindset from the very beginning, I think I would have made different choices. That's what it really comes down to. Because I think in the beginning, if you're not really in, entirely 100% on board with some sort of a business idea, and it's just sort of a thing you're dabbling in, well, you're just going to dabble in it with your effort. You're not going to give it 100% or 110% of your effort and make sacrifices needed to make sure that you really are creating the most licensable, the highest quality music, and partnering with the best libraries for yourself. If you're not t treating it that seriously, you're just going to be slowing down your progress moving forward. So while I'm thankful I got my foot in the door when I did, and I feel I was fairly young, I was 23 when I first learned about this, um, there's still a lot of things back then that I would have done differently had I known what I know now. So I hope you guys, if you see licensing as something that could really be a great fit for you, and you're in the beginning stages of it, take this stuff very, very seriously, okay? Mm -hmm. Do your research on your libraries, do your due diligence to make sure you're pro providing the highest quality tracks you possibly can, Try not to dilute yourself. I did this. I thought my tracks were a lot better than they actually were. 
Sometimes it's really hard to get out of your own mindset, but try to find some feedback, try to find some sort of coaching or something to get you to make sure that you are aware, you're self-aware of really where you are in your progress. Okay, are you really ready to submit to libraries or are you kind of in the beginning stages and maybe you need a couple of months to really get your your chops up to par? So anyways, that's my first one. Ken, why don't you go ahead and give us your first one? Uh, You know what? One thing I I, want to touch on was uh, not taking... playing off of what you're saying there, not taking rejection um, too personally. Uh, that was a big one for me when I, I really started out. I had uh, corporate people, they hated some of the tracks I'd done for them. And like, you know, I put you put your heart and soul into these things, right? And it's like, that was the best piano lick or riff or whatever I did. They end up, you know, trashing it, saying that's not what we're looking for. Uh, once I figured that out, once I, I, once I was able to disconnect my personal preferences, I hate to say that, but what I really thought was good and start creating content that people were looking for, uh, even though they might not have been able to clearly articulate it. And you find that when you get into, you know, a relationship again with a library, you, you really have to get an understanding as to what they're looking for and then learn how to create that. And even though it may not be something that you think that you you know you're really connected with on that personal level i found you know you're you're creating a product and that's what i found out that i'm doing i'm sure you get connected to it, you like it you know you put your heart and soul into it but if they don't like that string line or that synth line that i put in there they think that fights or competes with the end goal that you the product that you're trying to create i learned to remove myself personally i don't care if you decide you want a flugelhorn in my you know rock track and that's what you want in it, and you think that's great, I'm going to do that for you because that's my job. My job is to give you what you're looking for. So I really had to get to that place first. And once I did that, then I started seeing the tracks that I was creating uh, being used more frequently with some of the, the networks that I was creating for. And that was for some TV shows uh, that were you know, had asked me to do packages directly for them at, the, at that time. And it, it was, again, a challenge to to really not just put what I thought was really effective in those tracks, but what they wanted. So um, that that's that's the number one thing. Um, another thing I, I would talk to about, everybody asked me about when you get involved, you know, how are you making money? You know, you're gonna give away your rights. You're gonna give away what you own. And I'll ask them, well, if you're not licensing your music out to anyone because you don't wanna give somebody else a percentage of that, how much money are you making? You know, I, 50% of something is better than 100% of nothing. And when I, again, when I learned that, you know, the publisher or the library or whoever else or the, the network, a lot of networks will even take 50% of your um, your your rights or the publishing, 100% of the publishing. And that's, that's another complicated thing I didn't understand. Um, you know, there's the publishing and there's the writer share. And we talk about 100% of the publishing and 100% of the writer share, but really that's 50% of each. And there's confusion there. They say, oh, you're giving up 50% or you're giving up 100% of your writer share. People get very confused. So maybe I can break that down or Jesse, I don't know if you've broken that down in another video somewhere else, but uh, the writer share is 50% of the gross revenue that's generated and the publishing share would be 50%. Now, there's times you can negotiate different uh, amounts, but you should never give away more than 50% of the writer's share. That writer's share should always be 
between yourself or other co-writers or whatever else, that portion is split up. And then the publishers, whoever's promoting, licensing your music, let them take the publishing share uh, because that's how they make their money. And if they're making money, they're going to be placing your tracks. You want them to make money. And the, it, that's that's really how it works. If they're making money, I'm making money. So we can we can have a really great harmonious relationship all day long if we agree to that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've definitely covered that topic um, many times. I think the confusion point comes in that it's just the language that they use when they talk about publishing. They'll say 100%, like each one track has 100% publishing and 100% writer. So people are like, well, there's 200% of stuff there, right? right? Technically, yes, because I think a lot of ways that was written in a previous era. But sometimes that's easy because then let's say you co-wrote something, then the 100% is 50-50, right? You get 50% of the writer's share, the other writer gets the other percent. So then you guys are splitting this half of your back-end royalties and then the publisher if there's a single publisher who takes that publishing they take a hundred percent of the publishing or, or if it's co-publisher or three publishers or sometimes there's yeah. eight publishers I mean, yeah. you can split that stuff up as far as you really want to go so hopefully you guys are clear on that if not um definitely go through my free five-day course there's always going to be a link either in the description box or in the uh, description of the podcast episode so definitely go through that i explain that in detail but i really want to double down on what you're saying there which is so important about uh, you know, giving up the 50% or giving up publishers to a library and a lot of producers. And I had a little bit of hesitation about that as well. Um, and then the concept came to me that really made sense. And I don't remember who told me this, but it really is the best analogy that makes me understand it is what do you want? Do you want 100% of a grape or 50% of a watermelon? Which yeah. one do you want? Because that's basically your options in the sync licensing world. That if you go to a library and they say, hey, we need to take those publishing rights. We need to earn that publishing income so that we can keep our lights on and keep getting you placements. As Ken said, when we get paid, you get paid. And that's only that's the only time they're going to get paid is when they're making you money, right? And it's a great relationship. You really want to do that. I think many producers, especially those of us that had you know day jobs and we've never really been independent contractors or let alone had employees working under us, it's a really weird concept to wrap your head around because we've been taught, and I think there's a meme that went around in the late 90s and early 2000s, which is never sign over your publishing, never do that. And I understand that if you're a artist signing with a label, there might be a lot of reasons why you shouldn't be submitting or, or signing over uh, control or all of your publishing to a label or something like that. So I understand, but you guys got to realize that we are not really in the music business at all. That's a completely separate territory. There are different considerations for that, okay? We are basically in the TV, the film, the video game, the streaming industry, okay? We are supplying music to it, so we are sort of the foot of the music business coming into this industry, but you got to realize we are, a complete, we are in a completely separate world over here. And so you can't bring that mindset or that thinking into this business and have it work out well, well for you. So I agree. I love knowing and I love the fact that I have now partnered with enough libraries that I have a team, an army of people, not only in my U.S. Uh, companies that I partner with, but with their sub publishers. They have these other libraries around the world and all of them are actively all any time of the day you point to a clock. Somebody probably is pitching my music, shopping my music or at least making it available to various clients all over the world. So, and I don't pay anybody a dime for that privilege in terms of upfront. I'm not paying them an hourly wage to go pitch my music. It's all on a passive income uh, basis where they only get paid if they secure a placement for me and get me paid. So I love it. I've had no regrets doing that. But on the flip side of that, I do wanna say one of my big tips is that writer share. That's a big thing that I wish I was a little bit more solid on 12 years ago. 
And I will only compromise my writer share for two situations. Number one, of course, if I co-write, if I'm collaborating with somebody <clears throat> who brings the drums, who helps add guitars or sings on it or something like that, we will come up with a fair split. Usually it's just going to be 50-50 on the writer share. The second would be if there's an opportunity where my music can be directly placed to a client and have guaranteed placements that's going to recur in a lot of back-end royalties or maybe even a lot of upfront sync fees or both, okay? So I've had a few, very, very few, few situations where a library I've worked with, they have a, a, a relationship with a client, but the only way that they can get, you know, some guaranteed amount of placements for just our music is that the client takes all the publishing and the library needs to cut in on your writer share so that they can make something, right? They're not in here just for the goodness of their heart. They do need to make they make money. They have families, they have mortgages too. So when I, I'm faced with that situation, I do evaluate each one on its own. And if I'm thinking, well, again, it's like, do I want to keep 100% of the grape? And right, say, no, yeah. I want to keep all of my writer share. Or do I want 50% of this massive watermelon, meaning thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of placements, meaning recurring royalties yeah. for years. Yeah. I'd be kind of a fool to just blindly walk away from that only because this, you know, they're, they're cutting into my writer share. So those are the only situations where I'll even entertain doing that. What I did not know about, and this is what I've seen some other um, composers and producers doing, which I'm really pissed off about, I don't like seeing this, is when there's a producer or composer just working for a library, and then they go to kind of newbies in the industry and say, hey, I'll yeah. get you into this library, but you got to give me 50% of your writers. Yeah. I don't like that at all, because guess what, you guys? You can go directly to that library, cut that middle guy out. He shouldn't even, he or she shouldn't really even be doing that. I don't think that that's fair. I don't think that that's ethical. I think that's kind of predatory on newcomers because they don't know. Because it's not like he's saying, listen, give me 50% of your, your tracks and I'll guarantee you, you get hundreds of placements on this reality show. They're just saying, I'll get you into this library to potentially get other placements. Well, guess what, guys? You can go directly to a library. You can submit keeping your writer share intact. So anyways, that's my next uh, point. Uh, Ken, why don't you take it away with the next one? Uh, another thing I wish I knew better when I started out was how do pros work? Like where, you know... Uh, just under, again, I, I know we've talked a bit about that, but understanding how they worked. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have somebody uh, that was writing for Disney, actually, back in the early 90s when I, again, I was navigating uh, my music that I had on a fishing show. And I couldn't figure out how to even sign up with a, a pro. So uh, I had to talk to him. I asked him questions. Again, fortunately, he kind of mentored me for a couple months just answering questions and he connected me personally to someone uh, at I again I'm a Canadian so I deal with SoCan uh, it would be the same as you know ask at BMIC like whoever in the states or any other country and uh, I was connected with one person in there and back then the I think the architecture was a little bit more organic for lack of a better word but we were i was able to form a relationship with someone that helped me understand the process of submitting proper cue sheets because the shows i was i was writing for they didn't even understand uh the concept of cue sheets and submissions now when you're working with a library and a, a, a catalog they're working with the networks or the shows or the producers and their job the, the beauty of it is is that they'll make sure that you're tracks that are being placed are being you know logged properly on cue sheets and let me tell you if your stuff isn't being logged on a cue sheet then 
you're not getting paid. And so I had to figure that out. I kind of worked with the, the, the pro to, to better understand that. But I found even now when I do direct placements with the producers or I write, you know, for a show specifically, I have to still chase the producers a lot of time to make sure that my cue sheets are being submitted. And then thankfully, uh, you know, I've got enough of a relationship now with an account manager. My account's actually managed at SoCan that they'll go and look after, make sure that if they know I wrote for this series, that this, they're actually actively tracking it on my behalf. But when you're working with a library, my gosh, it's amazing because I can contact, I can reach out to my library and say, hey, in the last quarter, what songs of mine were placed or licensed out and then I can actually then go back to if they're not getting paid, you know, six months or not for me, nine months up to a year. It does take time. Everybody, you got to understand that this the process is building up a huge library of music uh, that is going to pay you out over time. It is like an investment strategy. And uh, so what I'll do with my libraries is I'll say, OK, well, what shows did you place? You know my music on so one of the catalog uh, libraries i'm writing for recently uh, i've been doing a lot of music for american pickers and i'm i haven't been getting paid but in canada they're right currently right now there's a bit of an issue a backlog with ascap funneling their uh, content to us well i was wondering again what placements have i had they were able to go back and say okay you've had 350 placements between this month and this month now I've got a relationship with my pro even. I talked to them. They're going to investigate it and make sure that once everything gets caught up on that stream of processing, that uh, I will get paid for those shows and those cues. So you got to have a bit of an understanding uh, where the money is coming from and the revenue is coming from. And one more thing I'll touch on. The, the big question is, why are these pros collecting money anyway? Uh, a lot of that money comes from the advertising revenue that uh, advertisers and sponsors pay, and the networks are then mandated to pay fees, a percentage, for the music usage for each minute of their broadcast. And all that money is then taken, pooled, and again, I'm not sure if you've, you've touched on where the money actually comes from, but uh, that's definitely, uh, it's, a, it's a stream that doesn't cost the, the production companies anything. So you really want to be in a really great relationship with these people and hoping that they're going to use more and more of your music because it, there's no cost even for the shows when it comes to uh, them using your music in these the programming that they're creating and the content. Absolutely, yeah. And some libraries are much more um, readily available to let you guys know when you received placements, probably like Ken said, maybe for the prior quarter. Some libraries <laughs> don't provide that information. They're not. Sometimes they have no idea themselves. They have to kind of wait until cue sheets get, get turned in or they actually themselves have to start seeing their um, their royalties show up. So that's kind of one of those things where you, you can talk. Definitely always communicate with your library and ask them, are you guys made aware of every placement or some placements or no placements? Like how, how much can I be in the loop on all this kind of stuff and obviously they're going to keep you in the loop as much as they possibly can but of course their primary uh, focus is going to be on making sure they continuously secure those new placements and um, so I've just found in my career very few of them have been able to give me that kind of information and let me know exactly I've had a very very small number of them I think usually what I'll find is um if there's a custom opportunity, somebody wanted a specific song for a specific commercial, usually it's going to be a commercial or some sort of a promo spot. Um, and they seek out a song and it happened to be my song. And then the library negotiated with that client for the sync fee to get it placed. Those are the ones they'll let me know about. Hey, your track just got placed. Here's your sync fee. Here's where it's going to be on. And, you know, you're going to be set for this one. Um, but when if it's like another 
keeping up with the Kardashians background instrumental placement. I don't get any updates on that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff I usually I never really find out about until I get my um, royalty um, statement. So, but you're absolutely right that uh, the better your relationship is with your library and all obviously with your PRO, if there's ever a discrepancy or you feel like you're missing royalties or you're missing a placement, it's better to be on the phone with people, talk to them, or at least directly emailing them to try to get to the bottom of that stuff. I think it's really, really very, very smart. Um, Another one that I will uh, say here, when I first got started 12 years ago, I only partnered with one library for about two years, maybe even three years. It was like two to three years. Um, And I think I, if you go back and if I had given myself advice back then, I would have said, no, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. You really want to diversify and work with probably at least two different exclusive libraries, feeding them different music, not the same music. You don't want to violate the contract, but this exclusive library, you send them an album, this exclusive library, you send them a different album, okay? And the reason being is because I, I, now that I've been in this industry this long, you got to have evidence that whoever is pitching for you and advocating for your music is doing the best possible job. If you only work with one company, and let's say they're earning you 10000 a year in royalties, sync fees, because everything they pay you, all the income you're earning, you're getting ten grand from this library. You might think right now, that's awesome. Like, I'm not making ten grand from my music. That's I'll take that, right? Well, what if the second library was making you forty grand a year, right? So not that you would say, ah, I'm done with this ten grand album uh, a year uh, library, but if you had nothing to compare it to, you really don't know if you're in the right hands, the best hands, I should say, right? So I, I know that this has happened to some um, producers where, they're working with one library for like two or three years and they've made nothing, like no income. No, they don't, they're not getting consideration fees. They haven't made any sync fees and there's no placements. There's no royalties coming in at all. And they'll re- email me, Jesse, do you think I should still work with them? I'm like, well, what do you think? I mean, two to three years with nothing. I don't expect you to become, you know, and I certainly didn't become uh, self-sustaining or have full-time income within a, a couple of years or whatever, but you should see something, right? There should be some placement, some sort of money coming your way, some new sort of excitement that your tracks are actually getting out there. So I would definitely say that to all of you that are brand new. Um, You know, obviously get your foot in the door with that first library, but as soon as you do that, you know, fulfill their needs, get it started, but in the back of your head, start thinking about a second one that you can partner with. And I think three is the max you should probably limit it to, okay? I don't don't recommend, and I don't think it's a great idea at all to go to like eight or 10 different libraries because you're going to be spreads way too thin you're not gonna be able to keep up with any of their demands and so most of them are going to see you as a flake or somebody that can't deliver on time so you just burned a bridge with a lot of potential future clients that you should have impressed right so i think just start off with two two is very manageable you should be able to manage two different clients and then start to a b compare um before you even see those placements what you should be looking for is Clear, consistent, and quick communication, okay? So if you email them and you're, and you're confused about a registration issue, you're confused about a client, you're confused about a brief they sent you, and it takes them a month to get back to you or they don't even get back to you at all, big problem. They're probably not gonna be fighting for you and trying to get you placements. They don't care enough to even respond to your email or explain things to you, okay? So the first sign of a very healthy relationship and maybe a very prosperous one will be the communication. Do they get back to you in a reasonable time? What's reasonable? I'd say a day or two, maybe three, maybe a week if they're very, very busy, but not a month. Certainly not two weeks, three weeks, something like that. That is way too long and that's showing that you are not a priority, that they really don't care that much about keeping you in the loop or at least, you know, calming your fears or sort of answering any of your questions. So look for those kind of signs. And if you're getting great communication and that you feel that they really are caring about you and even maybe getting on the phone with you and wanting to talk to you, really, really good signs that they're going to be advocates for your music. So anyways, that's my next one. Ken, you go ahead and take it away. Uh, you know, I I don't think I realized at first how long it would take to actually get accepted into a library and, and the, the length of time and the, the 
that I'd be waiting and fighting and, and working out. Again, I was doing it on my own. There was nothing like what you're doing here available to me. I had to, I had to try to reach out to the president or the, that's what I was in the president of the company. I, I went through a bunch of people that were managing libraries, but they kept sending me on crazy goose chases down roads to try to register with another library that they were representing. I probably spent two years, uh, at least, you know, it was at least two years and constantly rejected. They didn't like my stuff. It wasn't good. They didn't know who I was. I had no history. There was no opportunities there where I, I was, what I finally did in my, my story was I was able to corner one of the libraries that I was, uh, working at. I went to a trade show where, uh, the, they were all out there trying to sign on broadcasters and, I just I sat there in their booth literally for you know a couple <laughs> couple days and finally they they gave me the opportunity to to listen to my my music. What I had done at that point is I had amassed a catalog of say four projects, which was about forty tracks, not including all the the different versions. And I was ready to go. So when I did make my pitch, I had the content ready and I was able to license it out. But man, I had no idea how long it would. You know, I'd been investing and investing and pouring my time and effort into it for two to three years and didn't see any results. And and then still after that, once I did it get accepted, there's the obvious the, the process of, you know, you submit your content. It all the metadata has to be created, it has to be submitted, it has to be released on their system, then it has to get into a broadcast and, and, and to a show, and then it has to go through that system to get you paid. So I was I was literally you know, a year out after after that, when it was accepted, before I I saw a penny, and uh, fortunately for me, the music did get placed on some pretty decent uh, networks, and it was that was the beginning of a uh, a really solid, uh, consistent you know income when it came to the broadcast, the the licensing license music. So, yep, and it can be a long process. I know a lot of producers have uh, tried to get accepted, and they're dealing with that uh, rejection, or you know, worse, no response. <laughs> I, I understand. I've had that myself. Um, doesn't feel good to put you know all that time and effort into your pitch, into your album, and you got all these hopes, and you think it's all going to work out, and then you send them an email, and it's just like crickets, nothing. They don't even respond to you. So you know, and there's a million and one reasons why that might be. Sometimes emails land in spam folders. Sometimes they're just too busy to take you on. Sometimes they just don't like your music. They might like your music. It's not right for them. You know, there's a million and one reasons. And so rather than trying to mind read, and obviously, as Ken said, rather than getting personally kind of offended by it or upset about it, just see it as a data point, right? If you've just put this as a sort of a, a submission process where you have maybe your top three libraries you want to partner with, put them in order one to three, Submit to the first one. Give them about a week or two to respond. If they don't get back to you, send them one follow-up email. Hey, did you guys get my submission? Want to just make sure if you guys are interested in this, I would really like this album and I would love to start working with you. Otherwise, I will have to try to find another home for this, right? Give them that last, you know, maybe a couple of days to see if they're going to get back to you. And if nothing, okay, data point. They did not respond. Move on to number two. Exactly. The best way to confront or, you know, combat that anxiety or that fear or that like just rejection, just crummy feeling that we get is to have a plan of attack and just have something that you should be doing rather than sitting and stewing in that like anger and 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 worry that you're oh maybe i have no future in this career rather than going that and down down that entire wormhole and that rabbit hole that's going to completely just bum you out and destroy your motivation just have a plan of attack from the start so that if you get no response or rejected from one 
it's not the end of your entire process. You can go to number two now and restart that and try it again. And then number three. Now, if you get through all three and all of them either say no thanks or none of them, you know, get back to you, um, that might be a time where you can start to reevaluate your music. Was Were your tracks really ready to be submitted? Were they the best quality they could have been? Um, also, were you really submitting the right kind of music to that particular library? Because not every library shops to the same kind of clients. Some libraries are focused on uh, reality TV show content. Some are focused on ads. Some are focused on trailers. So if you submitted some great, awesome, epic orchestral trailer music to a library that's really just doing more minimal background crime drama shows, you know, you might have great music and you've you've done everything you're supposed to do, a very professional presentation, but it's just you're you're selling to the wrong uh, people. They don't, yeah. They're not buying what you're selling, essentially. So there's nothing wrong with your product. It's just that it was the wrong client <laughs> to approach. So I would say after you've gone through those three, probably that you you got rejected or ignored by all three, that would be the time that you could reevaluate. Maybe I need to rethink this a little bit. So my last uh, point I want to make uh, clear to you guys um, because this is a very isolating business to be a part of because you're working most of the time out of your home studio. There's a couple of conferences. There's a couple of get togethers. I can remember a handful of times where I would travel to meet my library owners and the other writers. I remember one cool one. Um, it was a library out of um, Detroit, actually, and they flew me out for this cool photo shoot. And I actually for a couple of days met the library owner, met their staff, met all the other writers. It was a lot of fun actually, but it was for two days. <laughs> and the rest of my 12 years, for the most part, you're in your studio, you're by yourself, maybe a phone call, maybe an email, but it's a very isolating business to be a part of, okay? So it's great that you can work from home because you're right next to your family and you know you don't have to have a commute. Um, there's a lot of benefits to that, of course, but of course, with everything, there's pros and cons. One of the biggest cons is when you're completely isolated and you're feeling burned out and there's no coworkers. Like when you're in an office, you can kind of you know talk to your coworkers about you're feeling burned out or bummed out and you can kind of joke around about it or you can get each other a little bit more motivated. But when you're by yourself, really, really, really hard to get through those moments of doubt. And that's one of the main reasons why I created Sync Academy, why I put my YouTube channel together, why I'm doing this podcast is to let all of you guys know that are listening that you're not by yourself. Okay, yes, maybe physically you're in your room by yourself, but you know, emotionally, spiritually, whatever, intellectually, you are not the only one going through what you're going through. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of other producers that are facing the exact thing that you're going through right now. And so I wanna just be a voice of reassurance to those of you that you're not alone. We're all going forward in this really cool and challenging business. And I think if you had asked me 12 years ago what I've done differently, I think I would have tried to be more active in creating a community probably of other producers that were also doing this to try to have, you know, more of a, some sort of a meetup or a, just a community, just some sort of a way to communicate with each other on a regular basis to try to just keep each other motivated and inspired as we go through this. So anyways, that's yeah. my last one. Ken, do you have a final one? Uh, well, I, I want to just throw a, a comment as well after that. I would agree. Um, I've got a few people that I, I always, when I'm feeling dry, you kind of just reach out to them and say, can you listen to this or do you want to even what I've done lately, which has helped me. I've been, you know, I feel I was in a bit of a rut. I've been doing some co-writing with people myself and getting their take and their approach on it has been, it's, you know, breathe new life into what I feel I can create. And again, of course, we're, we're splitting our, we are splitting our writer share fairly, but we're equally working on the tracks as well. And that means, I will either form some ideas, send it to them to finish, uh, or they'll develop a track, uh, some melodies or some, you know, beats and stuff. And then what I'll do is I'll finish up the production and, you know, add my component to it. 
and I was taking some newer uh, writers actually under, you know, underneath me in that regard uh, to help them get into to the library. But again, I was very much, uh, I knew they had the, the skill set to do what they needed to do. And it was really refreshing to be able to do that. So I think community is, is definitely uh, a huge thing. And um, that's, you know, I, I think that's just important that everyone here understands that. Uh, the only other thing I might add would be developing, like you said earlier, the relationship with the, the people you work with, your libraries, the catalogs. You really do need to nurture that relationship. And like you said, if someone isn't replying to you, in a, especially if you're working for them, and they're not getting back to you, I, my take is if they're not getting back to me, if I'm working actively on some spots or cues that they've requested, and they're not getting back to me that day or the next day, uh, then you do have to long-term really evaluate whether that they're actually interested in promoting your music and using it. So uh, the people that I'm working with, they, the libraries, I've been fortunate that they do communicate on a regular basis, but I've gone the extra mile as well. Uh, when I joined my most recent library, out of two, 300, there's probably 300 composers signed up with them. I quickly shot up to being one of the, the top composers only because what I was told is I actually delivered content. I, when they'd send out a brief and ask for, we, we don't do releases for them. They just, we just write, they give us a brief. We've got probably 15 different versions that they like to license out to their shows. And so I looked at it, I made a list. I said, okay, I'm great at writing in these genres. I feel comfortable. I can crank out some tracks. I did, I did a hundred tracks in the last year with them. And that took a lot of effort, focused a lot on it. But every time they send out a brief or what they would call a special opportunity where they had one of their shows, you know, saying, hey, we need music in this genre. I would crank out three tracks. And sometimes I do three tracks in a day. And my music supervisor then would get back to me and say, man, that's fantastic. I became, uh, I'm on the top 10 of all the composers there now. When there's special opportunities, they don't even email the other composers because they just know they're not going to get they're not going to get anything. So I know when I'm asked to do something, it's my job to deliver. And through that, I've had tons and tons of placements because you know they're looking for a certain type of music. They've given you a brief. They've even given you some examples sometimes. And I mean, it's just so easy to knock some tracks out of, you know, knock them right out of the park, send it to them. They send them to the producers and they're placed on the show. And uh, so you really, really need to value and, and build those relationships with people. So, I mean, I've, I'm at the place where I can text my guys if I need something, if I've got a question, anytime I need something, they're there, they answer it for you. So you really, it's, it's important that you build those relationships. Yep. And I think you're right. You know, getting to that inner circle place where, where you're now getting directly those briefs and they're not even wasting time with the people who have been flaking out and not even getting yeah. back to them, um, came down to your ability to do one thing and that is to deliver, right? To execute, to actually get mm -hmm. it done. It's the same thing in business and everything in life. Ideas are cheap. Everybody says they wanna do music. Everybody's excited about music. Very few people can actually execute and deliver when they're <laughs> asked to do something on time. So the fact that you made that commitment to say, I have a brief, I'll get it done for you. I will deliver, maybe even over deliver what you want every single time. It's like you're basically just building stock in your brand and your reputation yeah. with that library. And so they know Ken is the guy that gets stuff done for us. Okay, if yeah. we need something done, he's the guy. Not only does he have great music, but he gets it to us on time, which is actually more important than the music exactly. sometimes. It really because is. 
Yeah. Absolutely. You could have them. I remember one um, fellow composer. It was actually a vocalist that I was working on in the same library. Beautiful voice, incredible lyrics, incredible melodies, like definitely a, a star. Like this guy absolutely could have been the next Panic at the Disco. Just a massive voice, really, really talented mm -hmm. dude. Took him a month, though, to knock out a song. Every single time they tried to get him on board, and, and he even wrote to some of my music, and we split our writer share 50-50. But every time they tried to get him to go on there, it was like one entire month to get one song done um, because he was such a perfectionist and or maybe he was just so busy. I don't know exactly. I never met him, actually. It was just somebody that we collaborated virtually through the, uh, the relationship with the library. But that was one of those things where, you know, you're not going to be able to build up relationships and build up your catalog fast enough when you're going that slow of a pace so you do have to quick up, uh, pick up the pace a bit you do have to deliver things in a timely manner if you want to become the inner circle member and you want to do this seriously and that's pretty much the theme of what we're talking about here you want to just dabble in this stuff and once in a while throw sure take a month write one song you know and at the end of the year you'll have 12 tracks throw it out to a library yeah just see what happens and you can kind of keep that very slow pace but i just want you guys to be aware that is not going to land you i wouldn't expect that to land you in a full-time income situation that's going to be once in a while you get a nice sync fee you get a placement you get this you get that and it might be some sort of supplemental income to your career your artist yeah. career your day job whatever else you're doing and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that you can <clears throat> absolutely do this at your own pace if you just want to do it at a very very slow snail's pace but why i always talk about the more aggressive approach and the more um the faster approach is that I know most of you guys listening want music to be your full-time job. You're done with the rat race. You're done with the day job. You've always wanted to do music and you see that sync licensing is that avenue that can allow you to do that. And it absolutely can. But as you heard in this chat, it takes work and you got to deliver on time. You got to do your research. You got to treat it seriously. You got to improve your mixes. You got to surround yourself with people. So there's some homework. There's some heavy lifting that needs to be done if you guys want to take this um, all the way to the end. So thank you so much, Ken. I appreciate yeah. your time. Yeah, go ahead, man. No, I just go. It is hard work. If anyone says it's easy, it's it's not. I I didn't mean to cut you off there, but it's it's just not easy. I mean, you really have to be focused and, and committed to doing it. But the success uh, when you put that time and energy into it, you'll you will reap the rewards. You just need to to stay focused and and pour into it. So. Yeah. And just the last point I'll make just to finish this out is, um, you know, that sort of oversaturation question, which I get all the time. There's too many producers in this business. There's no space for me. I, I get that fear. I understand it. But listen to what you just heard from Ken is that even in this library that's already accepted, let's say 300 composers. Right. So these are the 300 that got into this <coughs> library, uh, basically um, outmatched all the maybe thousands that have tried to submit and get into this library. So these 300 got in. The fact that Ken is knocking out these briefs basically shows that even in a library with 300 composers, there's no problem with oversaturation. Exactly. Because he just found that most of those 300 composers aren't even participating. Like they got in and maybe they were excited for a couple of months, but they're snoozing now. They're not even responding to the emails. They're not submitting to the briefs. They're just, they've gone to sleep. So I've always said this, this is one of my sort of um, secret weapons, if you want to call it that, for why I've never been worried about uh, an oversaturated market or a library that has too many composers or an industry that has too many people in it is because most people are not sticking with this stuff, guys. Most people in six months are gone or two months are gone. They're not sticking with this long enough to start getting into those inner circle opportunities. So that's why even if you see 300 composers, oh my gosh, I'll never get a placement with them. You can safely assume most of those are not active. Most of those composers might have been active at some point and you know, the first couple of months they probably were. But even if you even if some of them are active, 
your job, if you really want to make sure you get into that center uh, inner circle area, is just know that that is your secret weapon, is consistency and executing and delivering on time. You do those three things, you don't even have to be the most talented producer on the roster. You don't have to have the best music. I'm sure Ken would agree that he's probably not the best. I know that I'm not nope, the best. I am not. There, are, there are certainly people that are way more talented than we are, but that didn't stop us from getting to the point where this was our full-time income. And, and that's all we did, guys. That's really That's really it. Easy to say, very hard to do. So with that, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. So thank you, Ken, so much for your time today, man. Um, if people want to get a hold of you or talk to you, do you have any contact information or websites you want to give out? Um, I'm launching a composer website, kenvandevery.com, right now to redirect you to my my production company. But eventually that'll have some stuff as I'm just finishing curating the content. So. Awesome. And I know that you're also obviously that guest speaker at Between the Waves uh, conference in Wisconsin, uh, which happens every single year. So if you guys are in the Wisconsin area um, or Canada or anywhere around there, you might want to check that out. It's uh, betweenthewaves.com, I believe, right? Yeah, or BTW, Madison. But I think it's betweenthewaves.com. You guys can check that out if you want to go see Ken um, speak when he's going to be speaking at the one coming up here. So Ken, again, thank you so much for your time. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening to the Sync My Music podcast. If you enjoyed the show and want me to do more episodes, all that I ask is that you leave me a review on whatever platform or app that you're listening to. It just takes a few seconds. I'll never charge for this podcast and I want to keep it 100% ad-free. And your review right now will help me do just that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.